Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just be with us during this time as we come to your word. Father, um, just just open up our hearts and minds. Lord, uh, remind us that apart from you, your spirit at work in us, uh, our minds are darkened to the truths of your word. We could read them and read them and read them and we would never um, we would never grow. We would never change. Um, Father, uh, we we pray that your spirit would help us. Lord, we don't want to stay the same. We want your word to have an impact in our lives. And so, uh, Father, would you would you make that uh, happen today in this place? Uh, Father, we want you to be glorified as in the way that the way that we come to your word and the way that we study your word. Uh, Father, um, it is this beautiful gift that you've given to us. And so, Father, help us to um, to just show honor and, and reverence to you in the way that we um, we listen and the way that we seek to learn and grow and apply your word to our lives. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about, um, about athletes and, and especially the Olympics and, uh, and just thinking about these individuals that train and train and train sometimes for years and years and years for the purpose of competing in one event. You ever think about that? We're not talking about a, a baseball player that, that trains, but they get to play, I don't know how many games, multiple times every week for several months out of the year. Or even a football team uh, that gets to play every week for a couple of months out of the year. But some of these Olympic athletes that train and train and train and train for that one shot at victory. You think about the, 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 the difficulty that comes along with training and the, the suffering that really one endures in those training settings. I mean, your body is broken down over and over, of course, so that it will grow back stronger and stronger. Well, what keeps those athletes going and training day after day after day after day. I think we would agree that it is the hope of one day, after having suffered through all of the, the physical and mental training, to step up on that podium and be exalted as that gold medal is placed around his or her neck. Would you agree with me? I mean, that that is the goal. That is the hope. And in those trying times where their bodies just want to give up, their minds just want to give up, they look ahead for this hope, this desire that one day the suffering will lead to exaltation. Well, in a similar way, I think we as followers of Christ who, if we are seeking to follow Jesus with all of our lives in this world that is opposed to Jesus, we who then will face suffering, we must have this right understanding of what is coming for those who have trusted in Christ. And Scripture tells us that it is this hope of exaltation. Now, we'll talk in a few minutes about how that hope is a little bit different in fact, greatly different from the hope of that athlete 
having that gold medal placed around his or her neck one day. But, in a similar vein, our suffering as believers leads to exaltation. I want you to turn your attention to verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. As we look at a mission of suffering, the exalted life. Beginning in verse 18, God's word says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, if you got to the end of that passage and you thought, wow, That was a mouthful. You're not alone. I think the same thing. And I'm not alone. In fact, one one Christian writer who lived many years ago, he said this of this particular passage in 1 Peter. He said, this is not only one of the most difficult passages in Peter's letter, it is one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. Now, I'll just be candid with you as, as your pastor today. Um, I try to always be that way. But when I come to a passage of Scripture, and then I read someone who is way smarter than me, who studied the Bible many more years than I have studied the Bible, and they say, not only is this one of the hardest passages in 1 Peter, it's one of the hardest passages to understand in the entire New Testament. Two thoughts, emotions run through me. Number one is, panic. Oh no, we have approached one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. I don't know if I can wrap my mind around this. I don't know if I can, if I can understand it enough for myself and then to be able to, to prepare a message and, and teach it to other people. But at the same time, as the, the kind of overwhelming nature of approaching a passage like this uh, floods my mind, I'm also encouraged Because it helps me know when I read this passage, as I have, and that thought goes through my mind, what in the world is Peter talking about? And if you didn't have that thought, just go back and read it again, okay? You weren't paying attention. When I have that thought, what in the world is Peter talking about? Uh, It seems like he just goes off on some rabbit trails, and where does some of this stuff come from? I'm encouraged to know that I'm not the only one who has felt this way, and people a whole lot smarter than me have felt the same way about this passage. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand it. That doesn't mean we should bypass it. Um, it just means that we have to come to it with humble hearts, knowing that, uh, that sometimes uh, we just have to say, wow, that's, uh, that's hard. And, uh, and we glean as much as we can from it, and, uh, and we trust the Lord with the rest. But I think, I think... 
by the end of our time today, we will see exactly why Peter says what he says in this passage and how it fits in with the rest of his letter. And last week we said this, if you were to look back at verses 13 through 17, we said this, that we can lead others to worship Jesus when we view suffering as a means of blessing. And so today, in verses 18 through 22, we learn this, that we can lead others to worship Jesus when we view suffering as a path of exaltation. Last week, we want to view suffering as a means of blessing. In this passage today, we want to view suffering as a path of exaltation. Now, this letter is a call for believers to endure suffering in this life for the sake of God's glory. We want to glorify God while we stay true to Him, even when we face persecution. And that in and of itself brings God glory. But also, we want to help lead other people to give God the glory and honor that He is worthy of as they see our lives. And one of the ways we can do that is by, is by drawing attention to the worth of Jesus by how we're willing to endure persecution for His sake. Remember back up in verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you should suffer for doing what Jesus wants you to do. And one of the main motivations for, per, for persevering through suffering is the belief that the suffering is temporary. You see, assurance that the temporary suffering will one day be replaced with eternal exaltation will give us as elect exiles the motivation to persevere through any form of persecution. If there's no hope of this ending, then it's going to be really hard to stick to living for righteousness sake. But if we know that this suffering is temporary and there is exaltation that is coming, we will be motivated to endure for our lives here on this earth. But the question then becomes this. How can we know that we will one day be exalted over the enemies who are currently causing us to suffer? How can we know that we are on the side of victory? How can we know that this suffering for righteousness sake is temporary? How can we know that we will one day be vindicated? How can we be sure that we will one day be exalted? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, our attention is drawn to four truths that should lead us to be confident that our suffering will one day lead to exaltation. These four truths are centered on Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, our suffering for righteousness' sake will lead to exaltation because we belong to Jesus, whose suffering led to His exaltation. Number one, we find this truth. That we can be confident that our suffering will lead to exaltation because through His death, Jesus has reconciled us to God. We can be confident, Christians. We can be confident that the suffering that we experience, remember we're speaking of the suffering that we experience on behalf of Jesus. We're not talking about the colds or the sicknesses that we have or just having a hard day. We're talking about suffering because we belong to Christ. And we stand out in this world and there will be those who mock and those who revile that kind of suffering. We can be confident that that suffering will lead to exaltation because through his death, Jesus has reconciled us to God. Notice verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
I'm telling you, we could, we could just spend our whole time on this one half of a sentence right here. This, is, this, this few words that Peter says in verse 18 is just full of gospel truth. Good news truth of salvation. For Christ, for Jesus also suffered. Yes, Christian, I know that you're suffering, but don't forget that Jesus suffered. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Peter is not simply calling us to look to Jesus as an example so that we'll follow in his steps. Certainly we should follow the example that he has set. And Peter has said as much earlier in his letter. He spoke about Jesus' suffering as an example earlier in the letter. But now he's not speaking of Jesus' suffering as an example, but he's looking to Christ's suffering as what it accomplished for us. And that ultimately is our hope, not in our ability to follow Jesus and suffer like him. But our confidence is in the fact that when he suffered, he suffered in our place. He suffered once for all. It was one time that Christ went to the cross. He doesn't go to the cross anymore. And we'll see why in just a moment. He went once for all in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Notice the substitution that's there. We are the unrighteous. He is the righteous. The righteous one went to the cross where only the unrighteous should go. Why? What was his, what was his goal in that? What was he going to accomplish? That he might, notice those words, bring us to God. Listen, listen to me. If you don't get anything else out of the message today, listen to this. Now, that's not permission to go to sleep after I finish this point, okay? But if you can only hang on to one thing, listen to this. Our greatest problem in life, your greatest problem. I know we have all sorts of problems in life. Our lives are full of them. I know that. Some small, some big. Some that that last just for a day, some that last for a lifetime. But your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is that when we are born into this world, we are separated from God. Sin always separates. And we are sinners. Our greatest problem as humans is that we are separated from God. And there is nothing that we can do to bring ourselves back into a right relationship with God. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come that he might bring us to God, that he might fix the greatest problem in our lives, that he might span that gulf that separates us from God. What is that gulf? It is our sin. And Christ enters into this earth as a human And he takes our sin upon himself. It says he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He pays the price. Peter has said through his precious blood. He said that earlier in the letter. Through his precious blood, he ransoms us that he might bring us to God so that we would be in a right relationship with God. Listen, listen. When you die, when you die, you either die separated from God or having been brought to God by Jesus Christ. That's the only, that's, that's it. There's no other categories. When you breathe your last breath, you either die separated from God because of your sin, or you die having been reconciled, 
put back into a right relationship. That's what the word reconcile means. You have a disagreement with someone and then you, you make up and you apologize and you forgive and you're back together. You've reconciled that relationship. Jesus is the only way that our relationship with God can be reconciled. He solves our deepest problem. And so when we are facing the suffering of this life as Christians, when we are trying to do the right thing and and we're suffering for it, we can be confident that that suffering will one day lead to exaltation with Christ because our sins have been paid for. Not because we did a great job following the example of Jesus, but because Jesus has brought us to God. If you're here today and you say, I don't know if I've actually been brought to God. I don't know if I... If I could say that if I died today, that I would die in a right relationship with God. My sin is separating me from God. And let me just say, you don't have to stay that way. If you will turn from your sin, the Bible calls that repentance. If you will believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying as the righteous for the unrighteous. He was dying for your sin. You'll trust that, that what he did on the cross is enough to bring you to God. You don't, he didn't bring you halfway and you have to make up the rest of it. His death on the cross will bring you all the way to God the Father. If you believe that, then listen to me. Today you will be saved. And you will have been brought to God by Jesus. Your relationship with God will be reconciled. And when you breathe your last breath, whether that's tonight, tomorrow, or 20 or 30 or 60 years from now, you will die in a right relationship with God because Jesus has paid the price for your sin and you have believed in that salvation. We can have confidence in our suffering that our suffering will lead to exaltation because through His death, Jesus has reconciled us to God. But secondly... We can be confident that our suffering will lead to exaltation because through his resurrection, Jesus has proclaimed victory over our spiritual enemies. Jesus has proclaimed victory over our spiritual enemies. Now we get to this point in this passage where we got to put our thinking caps on. You remember your teachers telling you that, right? You got It's time to put your thinking caps on. It's, it's time to go to work. Are you ready? You ready? You stretch a little bit, all right? Stretch your mind, do some mind, mind exercises. I don't know how you do that. We're about to dive into this interesting part of this passage. He says this. He says that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. Okay, that's the kind of suffering that he endured. He was put to death. His body died. But he was made alive. And some translations are going to say in the spirit. Some are going to say by the spirit. You can translate that either way. Um, I think... It should be by. And so he was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive by the spirit. And that's going to refer to his resurrection. He was put to death, but he was made alive by the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the day of Noah. Martin Luther, one of the great thinkers of the Protestant Reformation, said this. A wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty what, just what Peter means. There you go. Martin Luther said, I really don't know exactly what Peter means. So here's what I want to share with you. I want to share with you uh, briefly four views that folks have. This is a passage that, um, that some say tells us that in between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended into Hades. And did something there. And then on the third day, he rose up from the dead. 
Um, I don't think that is the teaching of Scripture. It's not something that we would get in a huge debate about. Uh, but I don't think that's the, the scripture, uh, what Scripture is teaching. This is one of the main passages that is used to, to speak of that and to back up that belief. And so I just I want to share with you these four views, and, um, and we'll, I think we'll land on one. The first view is this, that the Spirit of Jesus preached through Noah. All right, so we're going to go jump back to the Old Testament. Noah is a herald of righteousness, Scripture tells us. He is being faithful to the Lord, of course, wicked people all around us, around him. And so some would say that what this means is that when Noah was preaching, it was the spirit of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is eternal. Okay, so that makes sense. He's always existed. So it was the spirit of Jesus that was filling Noah and was preaching through him. Um, I'm going to say that that's not the right understanding, uh, mainly because it says that Jesus, it says that in which he went, he went. And if you go down to verse 22, where it says, who has gone into heaven, it's the same word there. And there it clearly is referring to Jesus's physical body ascending into heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so it just doesn't make sense to then say that to kind of skip over the word went. If Jesus didn't actually go there, it's just the spirit of Christ uh, preaching through Noah. So I'm going to say that that's not the proper view because it skips over the word went second view is this that the spirit of jesus preached the gospel to old testament saints between his death death and resurrection so some would say what this uh, verse mean these verses mean is that after he died before he rose that his spirit uh went and preached to the old testament saints those who had had faith in god in the old testament before christ came um now, if we say that it was by the Spirit, and that is referring to his resurrection, then that doesn't make sense because Peter is talking about here after his resurrection, not between his death and resurrection. Also, spirits in Scripture, where it says that he, uh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, it almost never refers to people. Only once in the book of Hebrews does it refer to people, but then it's qualified. And there's some explanation that helps us know it's talking about people. Spirits in Scripture, when it just uses that word spirits, it's not, it's not talking about uh, people. It's normally talking about angels, those in the spiritual realm. Also, prison, the word prison here, is never used to describe where people go after they die. That word is, is not used in Scripture to refer to that. And so I would say that that is not the correct understanding of what Peter is saying. It's not saying that between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and preached to Old Testament saints in prison. That wouldn't be right. The third is very similar to that. Some would say that the spirit of Jesus preached the gospel to unbelievers through his death and resurrection, between his death and resurrection. So after he died and before he rose up from the grave, he went and he preached to all the spirits of the unbelievers to give them a, a chance to now believe in Jesus. Well, again, for some of the same reasons, I would say that's not what Peter means. One, that can't be the correct interpretation if this is happening after his resurrection, which I believe it is. Also, remember the word spirits never refers to people except for that one time in Hebrews. And remember the word prison is never used in Scripture to describe where people go after they die. But also, we can add to, 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 to view number three, that contradicts all the rest of the teaching of Scripture that, that people have a second chance after they die. Scripture just doesn't teach that. The, 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 the clear teaching of Scripture is that our chance 
to believe in God's way of salvation is before we breathe our last breath here on this earth. And so for those reasons, I would say that's not the view. So why are you giving us these views that you're going to just say, well, that's not the right view. Just give us the right one. Because many hold these views, okay? So I just want you to be prepared and know, um, know what different people are going to say uh, about this passage. I think the fourth view is correct, and that's this, that the resurrected Jesus, this isn't happening in between his death and resurrection, that the resurrected Jesus, Jesus having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, the resurrected Jesus having ascended to heaven, he there proclaimed victory over, are you ready for this? I told you you need your thinking caps on, the disobedient angels from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, who are in prison. I know that's a mouthful. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, says this. I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to me um, as I read. It says this. This is in the days of Noah, okay? So it fits the context of First Peter. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, there are many interpretations of that. I'm not going to go through them. But what I think uh, that passage is teaching us is that in Genesis is that there was this time in the days of Noah where the sons of God, which is a way to refer to angels, left their proper boundaries that God had given them, came to the earth, took the form of men, which we see that happening all the time, right? Gabriel and different ones, they look like men. They took the form of men and they had relationships with human women and had children through them. And God, because of that, punish them you say where in the world do we see any other place in scripture that would help us think that that's what's happening well if we go to jude chapter 6 it says this and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day so there are this group of angels who have been disobedient to God and right now and until the day of judgment are bound up in chains, whether literal or, or, or metaphorical, uh, figurative. They are bound up in chains. So they would say we're, they're in prison. There are these angels right now who have been bound up who are in prison. Not only do we find uh, Jude saying that, but also we find Peter saying that in Second Peter. In his second letter, he says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he goes on to talk about Noah. So here is what this is saying. When Jesus died and then on the third day rose up from the dead, he ascended into heaven as the resurrected king of kings. He went, okay, he went and he proclaimed. What did he proclaim? Not a message of salvation. Hey, if you'll believe me, you can be saved. But a message of victory. A victory message. I am the king. I have won. Who did he proclaim it to? He proclaimed it to this group of angels who have been locked up in this spiritual prison and they'll stay locked up. Why would he do that? It's kind of like Jesus saying, listen, guess what? You've been in these chains. Maybe you thought that you were going to get out one day, but guess what? 
I just conquered death. I am the King of kings and I'm the Lord of lords and you are defeated. There's no hope of escape for you. He proclaims victory over spiritual enemies. And that interpretation also coincides with those verses in 2 Peter and in Jude. Now, why in the world does Peter put this in his letter? Think about it. He's talking to Christians who are enduring persecution. Some of them are being treated harshly because they are Christians. And what happens when you're in that situation? You want to give up. You wonder, is it worth it to endure? Is it worth it? I mean, what's coming in the future? Am I just going to do this forever and ever and ever? Am I just going to have to endure this persecution? And Peter says, no. Because Jesus, having suffered, died and rose from the dead, and he proclaimed victory over these spiritual enemies. He proclaimed victory over them. And so the victory has already been proclaimed. These spiritual forces will not have the final say. And so we can be confident then that our suffering will lead to exaltation. Truth number three. I'll pause for a second and let you breathe. Give your mind a second to rest. Truth number three, we can be confident that our suffering will lead to exaltation because through his resurrection, again, Jesus has provided assurance for our salvation. Jesus has provided assurance for our salvation. We're not done with the hard, hard part of this passage yet. OK, we've got one more. This is, this is one more hard part. OK, now I want you to notice this. He, it's hard too because it's just like this run on sentence. He just goes right from these proclaiming to these spirits in prison to talking about Noah. Notice he says, because they formerly did not obey, these are the, these spirits who were angels, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now he's going to jump ship, excuse the pun, and talk about Noah and the ark. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, notice that, that's the key word there, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's where we're picking back up with this resurrection. This is another reason why I think that when it says he was made alive by the Spirit, it's talking about his resurrection, because here he's still talking about his resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, he gives Noah and his family as an example. Think about Noah. One man and his family, a total of eight people, amidst the population of the world at that time. However many that was, but we can rest assured it was way more than eight. Here we have just this small group, this one family that stayed true to the Lord, while the many, the vast, vast majority, all those that surround them have rejected God. And I'm sure are mocking Noah and his family. You're believing in God? You're building this big boat? There's no water around? And he puts them forward as this incredible example to these Christians who I'm sure sometimes think it's just 
me and my church family. Sometimes it seems like there's so many in this world who are opposed to Jesus. You ever felt that way before? But this few remain faithful. And what happened? God rescued them. What was the end result? Listen, they didn't have to remain faithful and build that ark for a week. It took a long time. Years and years and years and years and years. But guess what? The end result was salvation. It was exaltation. They were the only ones to survive the judgment of God. They were brought safely through water. Notice that it says that they were brought through water. The water was God's judgment. And yet they escaped God's judgment. Why? How? Because God had provided a plan of salvation for them. And that plan was the ark. And they went in and God shut them in, Scripture says, to that ark. And they believed in God's plan of salvation. And they escaped through the judgment of God, through the water. And listen, Christian, one day we will escape the judgment of God because we have believed in God's plan of salvation. That is Jesus Christ, the one who brings us to God. Our suffering leads to exaltation. How quickly we'll look at that phrase that could be um, could be misinterpreted. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, now is Peter saying that baptism itself saves us? Zach, I thought you told us and showed us in Scripture that we don't believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. Just getting baptized, just getting pushed under the water and and brought back up, that doesn't save you. Well, this it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Is Peter, again, is he... Has he kind of lost his mind a little bit? Uh, what's going on here? No, no, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. I want you to notice that he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, he's not looking at baptism with this mechanical view. Like, you do this and this happens. You are dirty, you walk through the water, and then the dirt's gone. He said, no, not like that. Not you just get baptized, you go into the water, and you come up, and boom, you're clean. Not that. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as, here you go, this is important, an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Here's what he is saying. Is if, in the act of baptism, you are showing that you have appealed to God for a clear conscience, to be cleansed, to not be under the weight and shame of your sin. You've made an appeal to God. What is that? It's faith. And it's based, he's talking about Noah, it's based on God's plan of salvation. And he's just told us that that plan of salvation is Jesus who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So if in our baptism we are saying that I am, I am making an appeal to God that I'm trusting in His means of salvation to save me. Peter says, because Jesus rose up from the dead, you can be assured that that will be a salvation that you will have from now until you breathe your last breath that will one day result in your exaltation. Through His resurrection, Jesus assures us of our salvation. Just like the few who pass through God's judgment of death, that is water, and yet escape with their lives through faith in God's way of salvation, that is the ark. Elect exiles 
pass through God's judgment of death symbolized by plunging underwater in baptism. Right? Because if you go under the water, but you don't ever come up, you die. Right? It's that symbol of God's judgment. And yet, and yet, we escape with life through faith in God's way of salvation, which is Jesus, who conquered death by rising from the dead, in which we have joined with him through our new born again life and will join with him through our future resurrection, which is symbolized in baptism when we come up out of the water. It is an appeal to God through our faith based on his grace shown through Jesus, we will be saved. What does that have to do with Peter and the elect exiles? Well, just as Noah and his family passed through the judgment of God unharmed because they were safe in the ark, elect exiles, that's you and me, Christian, we will one day pass through the judgment of God unharmed because we are safe in the arms of Jesus who conquered death. And that's symbolized in the act of baptism. And so elect exiles, we can, we can look past our suffering. You think about that athlete looking past his or her suffering, looking past that, looking to the future exaltation. We can look past the suffering and realize that because Jesus rose from the dead, we have assurance of one day escaping God's judgment and being exalted with Christ. Let me give you the fourth one, and this is, this is easy to see here. We've made it through, we trudged through this difficult part of this passage, and we get to verse 22. Truth number four, our final truth is this. We can be confident that our suffering will one day lead to exaltation because through his ascension, Jesus has assumed the position of supreme ruler over all enemies. Through his ascension, Jesus has assumed the supreme position as ruler over all enemies. Look at verse 22. This Jesus who rose from the dead, verse 22 says, who has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We read about this in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 says this, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Hey, that's a great question for for us as elect exiles. Hey, God, I mean, I thought Jesus came to, to set up the kingdom. And Jesus says this, not yet. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, guess what? I'm not setting up my kingdom yet. Which means there's going to be this season where you're serving me as king, but you're enduring persecution as a result. He says, but you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What are you to be doing while you're enduring this persecution? You're to be living on mission. So until... My kingdom finally comes. You live on mission. And then it says, and we had said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was lifted up. The ascension of Jesus. Well, what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven? He physically sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Who gets to sit there? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. We read this at the beginning of the service. In Psalm chapter 110. I'm just going to read verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, which Jesus quoted this often to talk about himself, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's what Peter is saying in verse 22. 
He's saying that Jesus, having resurrected and gone into heaven, having sat down at the right hand of God, he is there at the right hand of God. He now sits in the position of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Supreme authority has been given to him. And so listen, listen, Christian, whenever you are facing persecution, whenever you look around, you say life is difficult as a believer in Christ. Listen, Chinese believers who, while they're sitting in their worship building, the government comes in and just starts knocking it down and taking people to prison, which has just happened in the past few weeks. When that's hard and it is hard and when you're tempted to give up, you just remember that the one who has reconciled you to God, the one who has resurrected and has proclaimed victory over your enemies, the one who has provided you assurance of salvation through his resurrection has ascended into heaven and he is at the right hand of God. And not only is he proclaiming victory over the enemies, he has victory over the enemies with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It's another way of saying spirits from back in verse 19, that these demonic forces have been subjected to him. And that means that if Jesus is our king, we don't have to fear them. You say, that I get that Jesus is exalted. Right? Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus has been given the, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has been exalted. But me? I mean, I know Jesus, but I'm not, I, don't, I shouldn't be exalted. No, you shouldn't. By no means should you be exalted. By no means should I be exalted. Except by the means that God has loved us. And He has paid the price for our sins through His Son, Jesus, on the cross. And so we actually have this hope that we will be exalted with Jesus one day. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. It says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then notice this. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him. Where is Christ? He's the right hand of God. He's in the position of exaltation. And yet Paul is telling the Ephesian church that through our salvation, that we are raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ has been exalted and all who belong to him will be exalted as well. You see, it's a little bit different than that athlete. That athlete has no assurance of exaltation because somebody might get the gold medal instead of him. Somebody might get the gold medal instead of her. They can work and work and work and work, but they're not assured of that exaltation. But, but Christian, we have that assurance. Christ has been exalted, and if we belong to him, we will be exalted. But let's say that athlete does come in first place, and they get that gold medal placed around their neck. One day that gold's going to fade, and nobody's going to remember it. That exaltation is temporary, but Christian, our exaltation is eternal, just like Christ is eternal. And where does that leave us? Why, why is Peter saying all this? Remember, we're to be living on mission. And one of the ways that we point other people to the glory of God is through our willingness to endure persecution for righteousness' sake. And if we can have confidence 
that this persecution, that this suffering is temporary and will one day lead to our exaltation, then we will have all the motivation we need to endure. And as we endure, we shine a spotlight on the one who has made it possible. Not just possible, but given us the assurance of our salvation. It's for the glory of God, for the sake of the lost around us. Have confidence, Christian, that you will one day be exalted and let that then lead you to endure persecution until you breathe your last breath. No matter what comes your way, you endure for the glory of God and the sake of the lost around you. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough passage. There's a lot here. But Father, it's Your Word. And if You didn't want us to know it, You wouldn't have given it to us. Father, our prayer, Lord, our prayer is just, just this. But Lord, that we would take the truths of this passage where You have given us reason after reason after reason as we have just seen a spotlight shine on the glory of Christ in His death, in His resurrection, and His ascension, where He now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, with that hope, with that assurance of salvation, Father, let that lead us to do what is right each and every day. Live for righteousness' sake. Live to proclaim the name of Jesus, having no fear of what anyone says. Father, because the suffering is temporary and what is coming is eternal exaltation with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And Father, we want the lost in our world to be there with us. And so for the glory of Christ who is exalted and for the sake of the lost around us, that they too would know the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Father, help us to endure. Help us to endure as we look ahead to that beautiful day when we are raised with Christ and we are seated with Him in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.